Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartMedia, and I love all things tech. And today I am recording from a hotel suite in Las Vegas, Nevada. And uh, if you hear noises in the background and it sounds a little odd, that is the reason why, or at least one of them. Another, of course, is that I'm tired. But I am here for the 2019 CES, the Consumer Electronics Show, which uh, is the largest consumer electronics industry show, at least in North America. And it's been going on for decades. This is my 10th time attending CES, although I did take a year off last year. Otherwise, it would have been my 11th time. And this show is enormous. It doesn't take place in just one spot in Las Vegas, Nevada anymore. It it covers lots of different grounds. So there are exhibitors at the Sands Expo Center, which is next to the Venetian Casino in Las Vegas. Uh, there are uh, all three of the halls of the Las Vegas Convention Center are filled up with exhibitors. And there are more in other locations as well throughout the city, including some places like uh, hotel suites and stuff where there are companies that have rented out a suite and they did so in order to kind of have maybe a quieter experience. A lot of the high-end audio uh, exhibitors will do that so that they're not competing in a noisy space. Uh, In other cases, it's because exhibition space might be really expensive and trying to compete with everybody else isn't terribly attractive. So some companies will rent out a suite and try and get people to come to the suite to go check it out. Although that's always difficult if you plan on seeing a lot of stuff each day, because it means leaving the main areas in order for you to go check out something else and getting around in Las Vegas can take some time. Like, you know, you might think, oh, well that that'll just be 20 minutes out of my way. And it turns out it's an hour and a half and, and you lose that time. And the show floor is only open a certain number of hours each day. Today, as I record this, is the first day that the actual show floor will be open to the public, the public, that is, that have bought badges for CES, and it doesn't open till 10 a.m. Pacific time. And as I record this, it is 9.20 a.m. Pacific time. Uh, So I have not actually been on the exhibit floor space yet, but the press day has already happened. A couple of big press events have already happened where companies have tried to get a kind of a head start and try to get their stuff seen before being lost in the cacophony of the general chaos that is CES. And a lot of the bigger uh, news outlets out there like Wired, Engadget, The Verge, CNET, they're already starting their coverage of the showroom floor because they get early access. So today I thought I would give an overview of some of the stuff that is happening uh, at CES and and give an idea of the, the trends that we're seeing. I will probably record more after I get a chance to walk some of this floor myself. Uh, granted, I'm going to have to pick either the convention center or the sands today because you can't really do both in the same day. So I'll probably do the sands today. That's where you get a lot of your startups, your smaller companies, uh, your uh, Eureka Park is there. That's the one that's known for like some of the more ambitious startup ideas. Uh, And then in the convention center, you tend to have the larger established companies, companies like Intel, Sony, you know, Samsung, that kind of stuff. They're, they're in the convention center Uh, and you can see neat stuff in both, but uh, I am going to give several caveats to this. First of all, because the show is so huge and I am one person Uh, there's a ton of stuff I haven't even seen or heard of yet, I'm sure. And even if I spent every hour that the show is actually open, walking through that floor space and looking everywhere I can and never stopping, I still wouldn't see everything. There's just too much here. The show is too big for any one person to see everything. Even if you were only trying to hit the high spots, you probably wouldn't see all of them because they're spread out pretty far. And again, just getting from point A to point B can take quite some time. So this is going to be a mile-high overview of the 2019 show. And before I get to some of the stuff that was going on, uh, one of the things I need to talk about is not so much technological in nature, but political in nature. And 
It's because it has a direct impact on the show. You can't get around it. So in the United States, currently, we have a, a partial government shutdown. Uh, in, in other words, the government right now, many departments within the government are currently unfunded. They have no money to run, so they are they're shut off, and the workers aren't working. <laughs> they're furloughed, essentially, without pay. So this has had its effect on CES in several ways. One of those is that there were a lot of U.S. government officials who originally were supposed to attend CES and be part of various presentations and panel discussions, and now they're not because their, you know, their, their departments are shut down, so they don't even have the, the budgets to travel to places. So they've all canceled their presentations. That includes people like uh, Ajit Pai, the FCC chairman, and Brendan Carr, also of the FCC, uh, Rohit Chopra, and uh, Rebecca Slaughter, both of the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, and Brandon Bray and Barnes Johnson of the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, uh, among others. So there were a lot of like important people in the U.S. government who were meant to come out and have these conversations about technology who can't now. Uh, it really means that there's a missed opportunity for interaction between consumer tech companies and U.S. government agents in a publicized setting to kind of create a public message of what the current uh, strategy is for developing consumer tech and its role in the lives of everyday American people, as well as the future of America, the future of American industry. All of those are very important messages that kind of got pushed to the side because of this government shutdown. More than that, in the United States, every electronic device that emits radio frequencies has to receive certification from the FCC upon proving that this device can operate within safe parameters in those radio frequency emissions. And a lot of companies are debuting brand new technology at CES, and with the government shut down, the FCC cannot do this important step. They, they can't go through the certification process. Which means in the United States, these devices are effectively in limbo until the government is funded again. So that has a very real impact on these companies. And also the shutdown has affected travel across the United States. TSA employees, the, uh, the security agency, they're not being paid. So a lot of people are calling out sick uh, because they need to work other jobs in order to make ends meet. So they're, they're not necessarily really sick but they're calling out sick in order to go work other jobs and actually make some money because otherwise they have to work without pay. And uh, it's, it's a critical role that they fill to help ensure safety, or at least if you're very cynical, put on security theater. But either way, it's getting harder and harder for that to, uh, to happen because they're not getting any salary. So that's also had a big impact, not just on the tech companies, obviously, but anyone traveling to come to this show. But that's the government shutdown and how it's impacting the, the world right now in the United States, or the world, uh, the, I guess the world, because CES is a global event. Uh, you have companies from all over the world here at the conference and attendees from all over the world as well, but uh, specifically affecting the United States. Moving on to what's actually going on and being shown off here at the event. Well, there are always some broad trends that seem to emerge during CES. For example, uh, at my very first CES 11 years ago, the theme I remember the most were widgets, these little web-based widgets that were on everything, like uh, kind of like mini apps, things like weather widgets or news ticker widgets. Uh, primarily, they were popping up on televisions, but they also would show up on things like kitchen appliances, like refrigerators or stoves. And widgets gradually evolved into more holistic and useful interfaces for smart devices, more like the operating systems you would find on a tablet or a smartphone. Another big theme back when I first started going to CES was 3D television, which was pushed really hard for several years. And the industry has largely backed away from that over the last maybe five, six years, they received the loud and clear message that the consumer tech market out there just doesn't really care. They're not interested in 3D televisions. So what sort of big themes emerged this year? Well, some of them are the same ones that have been around for years, new versions of technology that we've had for ages. And this isn't me slagging off 
on the conference or on the companies at this conference. The purpose of CES ultimately is for these companies to connect with retailers and with other companies. Because some of these companies are business to business companies, right? Like Intel. Intel does most of its business working with other companies, having their these other companies buy the processors from Intel to incorporate into other products. That's the real reason for CES, that often people like myself, people of the media, tend to forget. So to a lesser extent, CES is an opportunity for these companies to connect with the press and to get some publicity for their stuff. But largely it's for them to talk to other business folks about you know, carrying products in stores, things like that. They're talking about emerging lineups of products, and not every new product is going to be a groundbreaking piece of technology that breaks the mold and defines a new type of gadget. There's going to be countless new laptops, Bluetooth speakers, computer peripherals, headphones, kitchen gadgets, smart locks, and every other type of consumer electronic gadget you can imagine. This isn't exactly the stuff that tends to get reporters salivating about covering the products, right? Like, a, a reporter who's been doing CES for a while might look at these things and just go like, great, another computer. Uh, but at the same time, we wouldn't expect companies to just keep selling the same old model of gadget year after year. Of course, they're going to come out with new ones that are maybe faster, more power efficient. They legitimately have added value, but it may not be sexy enough for the press to really get excited about it. So I'm not going to cover all of that. <laughs> that would take 30 episodes about CES, about minute changes in some technologies. So what are some of the more innovative trends that are emerging? Well, artificial intelligence is a huge one. And this is a tough theme to talk about because people use the term AI so loosely and in connection with all sorts of different concepts, right? Like artificial intelligence is pretty much everything until you say it's not. Uh, Some people refer to artificial intelligence in the sense of machines that seemingly think like people. Others use it in a more general way to talk about machines that are capable of making certain choices based upon the parameters that were programmed into those machines to, you know, weigh all the different uh, elements in any given decision-making process before coming to a conclusion, that kind of thing. But we're really talking more about capabilities built into tech so that the tech can make some sort of choice on its own or learn from user behavior and to uh, customize an experience based on user behavior. So along with that, we're seeing a continuation of a trend that really started to pick up steam a couple of years ago, which is uh, integrated support for AI assistance. You know, stuff like Alexa and Google Home and Siri and that kind of thing. Um, Google which has a huge pop-up building set up on the parking lot of the Las Vegas Convention Center. I saw the building, haven't been in it yet, has announced that Google Home support will be on 1 billion devices by the end of 2019. Most of those devices, however, the company has admitted, are going to be phones. But there will be other devices as well. Meanwhile, security experts and consumer advocates continue to express concern about things like consumer privacy security, transparent policies, more people are starting to worry about devices that always have an active microphone going, right? Whether it's a phone that's in their pocket, or maybe it's a smart speaker on a side table, maybe it's your car. And even if you go to great measures to make sure that you don't have any of those products, that none of your products have an active microphone that could be potentially listening in on everything and categorizing all of your conversations and building out a more and more detailed profile of your likes and dislikes. You can't be sure that all the places you visit don't have those things. Like even if you're out in public and people have smartphones that have these assistants on them, it starts to make you really paranoid, but for good reason, because these companies have repeatedly had data issues, data security issues that call into question their practices. So that is a continuing conversation and one that I think has to be addressed uh, through, like I said, in my wish list, transparency, really good security measures. uh, All of that's incredibly important. And ultimately we need to start making some decisions about how okay are we at all this information being gathered 
uh, even if companies are saying they're not gathering that info, you know, all it can take is some lines of bad code, even if it wasn't intentional, it could still happen. So we have to start saying, well, how, how much of this do we want to trade off? Like, do we find the benefit of these technologies to be so compelling that we're willing to, uh, to deal with the fact that we're being recorded or that our, the things we say are being analyzed in a way that will affect us later on? And uh, I don't have the answer to that, mostly because I haven't seen the benefit being so, <laughs> so incredibly compelling that I find the trade-off to be worthwhile. Anyway, uh, that's going to be a continuing conversation I think we'll see in 2019. Now, related to AI was a new emphasis on robots. And robots have been a big part of CES for as long as I've been going. I mean, ever since I started, I've seen robots ranging from very primitive robots that are essentially just uh, the, the equivalent of one of those toys that will move when sound is playing. So the robot is just kind of boogieing down whenever music is in the area. And all the way up to robots that can more in a more sophisticated way, respond to questions and return useful information. Uh, I'm pretty sure the first year when I went was the first time I saw a Parrot drone. I want to say that was like when Parrot first showed off their consumer quadcopter. And uh, uh, every year since, there's been an army of new robots meant to do everything from clean your floors to sweep out your gutters to folding your clothes fresh out of the wash. And we've seen several robots meant to interact directly with people over the years. But this year, that seemed to be emphasized a little bit more than usual. So companies are talking more about designing robots specifically to work in human environments and to have meaningful human-robot interactions. Now, personally, I think this is a fascinating area of technology because it requires not just a deep knowledge about tech in general and robotics in particular, but also human psychology. You have to understand people to be able to design robots that can interact with people. And one of the challenges of that is that our behavior as people, our human behavior can change when we encounter robots. That if we were to encounter another person, we might behave one way, but when we encounter a robot, we might behave a different way. And in turn, this can change the nature of that human-robot interaction. So designing robots that are meant to seamlessly interact with people is incredibly challenging since it's kind of like an idea in quantum mechanics, right? There's that quantum mechanics principle that says you cannot observe a quantum system without also affecting that system. In other words, you can't make a measurement without affecting the thing that you are measuring, which means your measurement is no longer an indication of what that thing was. It's now what that thing is because you measured it. It's this mind-bending concept. Well, with human-robot interactions, you can't really design a robot to work perfectly out of the gate because people are not likely to react to that robot in the way that you imagined when you started designing the robot. So this involves a lot of design and redesign work. You create a robot, you create the software for it to guide its interactions. You find out people are off-put by the way the robot behaves. So then you have to go back and adjust the robot's behavior. And now you find out that people are reacting in a totally different way, and it's still not exactly what you had planned, so you have to start asking yourself questions. How do I guide the behavior to be more like the result I want, or do I need to change my expectations? This is a fascinating thing for me, because it, it really shows that you have to go beyond just figuring out how to make stuff work. And then you have to figure out, well, how do we as people work? And how can we make stuff that works with us instead of against us or inspires us to work against it? Uh, I hope that sometime this year I can have a specialist in human-robot interactions on the show to talk about these concepts and these challenges because I think it's a really interesting area of technology, something that, that goes beyond, uh, like I said, the circuits and the tech. Also, at CES... This is not a surprise. If you've been following the progress of the show over the last several years, I'm sure you would have expected this. We saw tons of driverless car concepts. Some of them were practical demonstrations. Some of them were not truly driverless car practical demonstrations. I'll talk more about one of those in a bit. Uh, but there were tons in concept form. Uh, BMW introduced a concept called iNext, 
which is meant to go into an autonomous car. It itself is not an autonomous car. Instead, this is a mixed reality technology. Mixed reality is what we call that type of tech that kind of incorporates stuff like virtual reality and augmented reality. So in this case, uh, it's a concept where you would have a car that could have at least some autonomous operations. Now, when the car takes over, then you could enact this uh, iNext platform. And it's a productivity platform and an entertainment system. So you could do things like look at your schedule or watch television or have a video conference call. And you would see stuff projected on the the windshield as if it were just a regular display. Uh, This obviously would require the car to be controlling itself or else you would have a terrible accident because you would have someone's head appear like... Marlon Brando's face in Superman, and I think that would scare me to see Marlon Brando in the windshield of my car for numerous reasons, uh, his death being one of them. The BMW concept was shown off in virtual reality, so this was not a, a practical vehicle that they were putting people into, but rather a VR headset so that you could put it on, you'd have some controls at your disposal, so it'd be like you're driving a vehicle, And you could go through the demo to see what it would be like to hand over control of the vehicle to the autonomous system and then engage the iNext system. Now, I did not do this. I did not do this for two really big reasons. One is I don't drive. I actually, I get anxiety about driving. It's a, it's a phobia and it's something I've had to deal with. It is a terribly inconvenient phobia to have. Uh, It is socially embarrassing. I've talked about it a couple times on the show. But I've been dealing with this my whole life, and I, I just haven't gotten any better at it. Uh, so that's one reason I actually get anxiety, even with the whole virtual driving thing. I don't even like driving video games that much. Um, the more arcadey they are, the better I am at it. But um, I, I didn't want to give myself anxiety just sitting down to do a simple maneuver in a VR car and have it hand over to uh, an autonomous vehicle. Uh, and I know... I know this is goofy. I know I'm a doofus. I get it. You don't have to tell me. I'm very aware. But the other big reason is kind of practical, y'all, because this is a tech conference. There are hundreds of thousands of people here, or at least more than 100,000 of people here from all over the world. Some of those people are likely not entirely healthy right now. They probably have colds. It's cold flu season. So some of them are probably sick. Some of them based upon what I have witnessed, fail to wash their hands after going to the restroom. And yes, this is gross. And I hesitate to even say it, but I have seen this over and over again at CES when you know, I, I'm standing at the, in the men's room, I'm, I'm washing my hands and someone just walks from the inside of the restroom straight out the door without washing their hands. And I think that is disgusting. And then I think I'm at a consumer electronics show where people pick things up and handle them and put them back down again for other people to handle. And you immediately think, I got to wash my hands at every opportunity when I'm at this show. But then you think, I am definitely not putting on a VR headset. That is not in my cards. Um, And I don't say that to gross anybody out, but rather to, one, to stress to my fellow conference goers, for goodness sakes, wash your hands. Come on, people, just some hygiene here. And two, for everyone else, think about stuff before you handle it and put it on your face and everything, because I don't want you to get sick. I, I want it to be a good conference for everybody. Okay. Also related to vehicles is the concept of connected technology within cars. So this is kind of like the Internet of Things concept, uh, and it goes beyond car systems, right? We've seen these, this connected idea in all sorts of technology, but in-car systems are one of those that get a lot of attention year over year, and this year is no exception. Uh, these systems have huge amounts of connected technology in them. Some of them are pretty cool, like they have uh, cameras that are inside the cabin of the car, I've already seen vehicles that do this. Obviously, there have been several that have been on the market for a couple of years. A friend of mine actually has a car that has a camera mounted on the uh, rearview mirror so that if her eyes drift away from the space in front of her, her car gives her an alert saying, hey, put your eyes back on the road. 
So if she looks down at the radio or if she were to look at her phone, she would get a notification from her car saying, don't do that. Or if she were to nod off, she would get a warning. This is something that we're seeing in cars, but we're seeing even more of it now. Like there's aftermarket systems. There are systems that are being designed for cars as soon as you get them right off the lot. And some of them are... Uh, pretty nifty stuff. Uh, we also see a lot of touchscreen interfaces, a lot of app integration into cars. Navigation tools obviously have been a big part of vehicle systems for a while now. Personal assistance, like I said, with Google Home and Alexa, all of that incorporation is happening right into the vehicles at this point. Uh, we've seen studies that prove that distractions can be as dangerous as driving while intoxicated, and that makes me a little concerned about all these features. I, I'm worried that they might have an impact on driver attention and focus. They're not supposed to. They're supposed to allow a driver to access all these things without diverting their attention from the road. But these are features that go beyond what you would typically access in a car, right? Like if I'm thinking about before we got to all these in-car systems, years and years ago, let's say it's like the 70s, you had your radio, you might have an eight track player, and then you had your vehicle and that was it, right? You didn't have navigation systems. You didn't have entertainment systems. You didn't have in-dash uh, information systems. You know, you had your, your regular speedometer and things like that, but you didn't have all this other stuff. So there were things that you could be distracted by, like if you kept on searching the radio to find a station that was playing something you liked, but it was limited. These days, we've added in so many interesting features and toys that it makes me worried that it's pulling too much attention away from the road, which might mean that autonomous vehicle systems are a necessity anyway because we're making it more dangerous to drive a car. But um, the, the concept is supposed to be that it doesn't take your attention away. Maybe you're using voice activation for all of the different features, which is fine if those features don't pull your attention away, um, but as I see all these cool screens and really flashy displays and, and interesting apps and all this stuff integrated into cars, I, it just, it starts to make me think more and more about the casinos I'm walking through with all the slot machines and, and flashy lights and stuff. It just seems distracting to me. And again, it's hard for me to say if this is meaningful to any actual driver because I don't drive. I'm looking at this from an outsider perspective. So maybe, again, I'm making a big deal out of nothing, but it just doesn't sit well with me in every case. Now, there are some driverless or, or some uh, in-car in connected systems that I think are pretty cool that maybe don't have that kind of factor to them. Uh, so I'm, I don't want to paint them all with the same brush. And there's also a related element of uh, privacy and security issues with connected cars. I mean, the more features you create that... Uh, allow a car to access off-vehicle services, uh, the more opportunities you have for someone to perhaps take advantage of that and uh, hack your car, for example. But we've already seen examples of, of car hacking, even with limited in-car systems. So I, I hope that security is something that is uh, first and foremost in the minds of the designers who create these systems. I've got a lot more to say about what's going on at CES 2019, but before I get into all of that, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. All right, I talked a lot about some of the broad trends that are going on. Let's talk about some specifics here. Uh, one of the big news items that, <laughs> that broke here at CES was really surprising to me. And I found out about it from my buddy, Ayaz Akhtar. He, he works over at CNET. He's a really smart guy and is doing incredible work. If you're not familiar with his work at CNET, I highly recommend you go check it out. Uh, I don't say that just because he's my friend. I say that because he does really good work. Anyway, he was telling me, hey, you heard about AirPlay, right? I'm like, well, yeah, I know what AirPlay is. That's, that's the Apple feature that allows you to stream content from iTunes to something like an Apple TV uh, platform that then can connect to a television and you can watch stuff from like iTunes, you know? You can send it via AirPlay. It's kind of similar to Chromecast. That's Google's version. He says, no, 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 AirPlay 2. You heard that more and more manufacturers are integrating AirPlay 2 directly into their, their 
products into their television sets. This was news to me. We're talking about manufacturers like Samsung, Sony, and LG. And Samsung and Apple have not had the smoothest of relationships over the years. So that is big news because typically what Apple does is it likes to play within its own ecosystem. It doesn't tend to like to incorporate its technology into someone else's products. It tends to like to create its own products and then you connect those to other people's technology. And I say it likes to as if the Apple company is its own sentient entity. As far as I know, it has not yet gained sentience. But now Apple's working with these other companies to support its AirPlay technology. So if you buy a Samsung or Sony or LG television with this feature, you will be able to use like an iPhone and stream stuff that you've bought on iTunes directly to these televisions without having any other peripheral attached to it. You don't have to have an Apple TV hooked up to it or anything like that. This is an interesting move because for years probably for the better part of a decade, there have been a lot of rumors that Apple was developing its own television so that it could do this, and again, keep it all within the Apple ecosystem. So that, yes, you could do the same thing, but it would all be an Apple product. The television itself would be made by Apple. This appears to say, maybe they're backing off from that. And to be fair, the heads of the company have always been coy about whether or not they were going to come out with a television. And it may very well be that Apple has come to the conclusion that developing its own television to compete on the market against all these established manufacturers that have been making TVs for decades might not be the best business move. And so they're backing off instead and partnering with those companies to incorporate this technology directly into their products. So yep, future TVs from major television companies will likely have AirPlay support, which is kind of neat if you use AirPlay. I don't, but it's only because I don't have any Apple gadgets. Um, I I don't think it's, I don't think it's a bad service at all. I just literally don't own anything that can do it. My wife has an iPhone. I guess she could do it, but you know, she doesn't let me play with her phone for good reason. I mean, I'm a, I'm not a responsible person. You can't put me in charge of an iPhone. Anyway, that was a big announcement that I found very surprising. Uh, one of the products that's getting a lot of buzz, and I've seen videos of it, but I have not actually seen it in action yet. I hope I can swing by the booth and maybe see a demo of it, is the LG Rollup Television. Uh, it's going on sale in 2019. Sale is probably the wrong word. It's going for a premium price in 2019, and it's an OLED screen, and it rolls up like a window shade. So if you remember those old window shades where, especially like in cartoons and stuff, you pull it down... And then to pull it back up, you just you give it a little tug and then it, it, it activates a spring and the whole thing rolls back up. It's kind of like that, but much slower and, <laughs> and, and measured because you don't want to break a incredibly expensive television set. The version that LG showed off is a 4K resolution screen, 65 inches across the diagonal. So pretty big screen, uh, larger than my television at home. It has a 100-watt Dolby Atmos speaker in the base. The base looks kind of like, uh, like a credenza. It's like a, like a cabinet almost. And so it folds down or rolls down into this base. And when the screen is all the way down, a cover slides on top. And so it looks like a little piece of furniture. And then you activate it and the, the cover slides back and the television can extend back up. You can actually even extend it just a quarter of the way if you like and use it as a music player, and it will, it will show like the title of the song and the basic controls and everything. Um, and so then it becomes like a, a, a weird little sound bar, um, and it's super neat looking. Also, it has AirPlay 2 support, so it's one of those TVs I was just talking about a second ago. It also is going to have uh, Google Home and, uh, and Alexa support, so you'll be able to use the assistance in that case, with these TVs. So it's super high-tech, and it's getting, like I said, a lot of buzz. A lot of people really like this. And I like the videos I saw of it, but as I said, I've not yet set eyes upon it in person. I hope to do that probably not today. I think today I'm going to the Sands, which is the, like I said, the Eureka Park area with all the startups and stuff. And then tomorrow I'll hit the convention center. Uh, rollable and foldable OLED screens are showing up in other places too. We've actually seen some foldable displays for several years, uh, but they were always in the prototype 
phase. It wasn't meant to be a consumer product, but rather here's what the future can hold kind of stuff. So we're now starting to see it rolled out into actual products, including one that is already on the market in China. That's from Royal, uh, R-O-Y-O-L-E. They are mostly known for their displays. Uh, They did a cinematic, like a personal cinematic display, essentially a headset that allows you to watch movies. Uh, They had that on on display a few years ago. Now they have a flexible sort of tablet-slash-phone kind of thing called FlexPi, uh, F-L-E-X-P-A-I. And as I said, it's already on sale in China. So when it's unfolded, it's like an 8-inch screen, but you fold it in half, and it has a a specific area where uh, the, the bezel allows for the folding, and you can turn it into a phone. Uh, When it's folded, it looks pretty thick, especially right where the bend is. It looks a little bulky to me. I haven't had my hands on this either. I've only watched videos of this as well. Uh, So I don't know how well it works as a phone, but the screen is gorgeous. And the fact that it does bend and it still, you know, is a perfect display on both sides is really nifty looking. Uh, I hear that some of its features are a little low tech, like the camera, I understand, is not particularly good on it, but it's still, for an early technology, pretty impressive. Also, uh, I mentioned VR uh, in a demonstration earlier that was just meant to demonstrate a different technology, but VR itself is still a thing. Um, It's one of those technologies that we've been waiting to see break out for a while, or just fizzle away, kind of like it did in the 90s. Uh, And like the 90s, I think we're seeing the same sort of reaction where people are starting to feel like the promise of VR doesn't quite, um, like the, like the reality of VR doesn't measure up to what the promise is. So anyway, uh, we're still seeing some interesting VR tech shown off at CES. HTC showed off a new Vive Pro headset that has eye tracking support. It's called the Vive Pro Eye. So you can use your eyes to navigate menus and control interfaces and that kind of thing. Uh, so you, you might have choices displayed in front of your eyes, and when you stare at a specific choice for a certain amount of time, it selects it, that kind of thing. And so you can navigate through menus, you can you know have game developers develop games where specifically your eyes are the control. It's kind of neat. Um, they also introduced a new user interface design called the Vive Reality System. So previously, the menu screens that you would encounter in the Vive were pretty much like PC type menu screens, flat two-dimensional screens. That kind of takes you out of the immersed feeling you would get in virtual reality. The new system creates a more three-dimensional approach to redesigning menus and transitions and stuff. So that way it's more like you're navigating through a virtual world um, to make your choices as opposed to just looking at a screen. They also introduced a new headset called the Vive Cosmos that is meant to be easier to set up and to use and That way it removes one of the perceived barriers of virtual reality. I would say that the two big barriers to adoption, uh, one is that it is fairly complicated technology that tends to require multiple pieces like a computer, uh, cables, power cords, you know, the headset, all the controllers, all this kind of stuff. So this is meant to cut down on that. Uh, And the other would be the price. it, It costs a lot just to buy the equipment And then to have a decent computer that can also run all the software, that also adds to the cost. So Vive Cosmos is meant to be kind of an answer to both of those. Um, I am curious to see if they're able to uh, really make that compelling, because then the question is, do you trade off the experience to such a degree that people don't, you know, yes, it's more affordable and easier to use, but people don't care because it's not particularly fun or interesting. That's a possibility. And I don't know the answer to that. A lot of that depends upon the developers who create the software for the hardware. Intel showed off the ninth generation of its current processors, now with elements measuring in the 10 nanometer range, which blows my mind. It's way smaller than I ever thought we would manage to get and still be able to cope with quantum effects. And yet, here we are. It's one of those reasons why, despite the fact that we keep on saying Moore's Law is going to have to come to an end soon, Somehow, people keep finding a way to push that further off into the future. Uh, These processors are able to pack more power than previous models, and the company also showed off a new microprocessor architecture and motherboard design that they called Lakefield, 
And that builds out the processor into three dimensions. It couples various elements together very tightly to decrease the amount of time and energy it takes for data to travel between these various components. Now, the Intel says that the result is that this family of processors are faster, they're more powerful, and they're more power efficient than any of their predecessors. And the demonstrations the company held were pretty impressive. But again, I haven't seen it in action yet. I'll see that when I go to the convention center because Intel's one of the largest booths uh, over in the central hall of the Las Vegas Convention Center. They also revealed that through a partnership they have with Alibaba, they're creating a 3D athlete tracking system for the next Summer Olympics. And they'll be able to use video cameras and this software to analyze athletes' movements and quantify athletic performance in a really crazy granular way. So if you want to know precisely what angle a shot put thrower chose when he or she set a world record, that system will grab that information for you. It'll tell you tons of quantifiable information about every single aspect of an athlete's performance during the Olympics. Um, I'm not sure if that information will ever come across as being anything more than just interesting from a curiosity standpoint. Like, I don't know that it would necessarily ever become informative or uh, helpful or educational for anybody. <laughs> like, it's, it's one thing to know that someone threw a shot put uh, at a specific angle. It's another thing to be able to replicate that precisely. Like, if you told me, oh, you just need to stand at a 37-degree angle to the ground in order for this thing to happen, well, first I'd say there's, that's impossible. I don't have the calf strength to hold myself at a 37-degree angle. But I'd also say I don't know how to process that in a way to actually do anything about it. Intel also talked about 5G. 5G is going to be one of those buzzwords that gets a ton of coverage here at CES. That's the upcoming new wireless uh, data transfer standard that will allow for much, much faster wireless data uh, networks. Uh, so they talked about uh, working with that on a chip codenamed Snow Ridge, which will help handle processes that are running on 5G to optimize them so that you're getting the absolute most out of your connection. Uh, then we can move over to Samsung. They showed off 5G smartphone designs, so they also talked about 5G quite a bit. Uh, they showed off a 98-inch 8K television. Now, never mind that there's no 8K content out there. In fact, in the presentation, they say, when 8K content becomes available... <laughs> so this is a television that literally is able to display resolutions higher than what anyone has generated for content that you can watch at home. 8K will come along, but I... I've talked about resolution before on Tech Stuff and my own personal experience with high definition 2K and 8K and 4K and all that kind of stuff. I have to say, from my experience, once you get to a certain level of, of resolution, let's, I mean, even HD to 2K isn't a, a, that big of a jump unless you're talking about an enormous screen and you're sitting really close. Uh, but 2K, I would say, I could tell there's a difference between 2K and HD, if both all other settings are as equal as they possibly can be. Because remember, the quality of a picture you see on a television is not just up to the resolution. There's color representation, brightness, contrast. There are all these other things that are important with the quality of a picture. So you could have an HD set and a 2K set. And if you were really good at tweaking all the settings for the HD set, and you were really bad at tweaking all the settings for the 2K set, the HD might actually look better. But if all things are equal, then I might be able to tell a little difference between 2K and HD. But I probably wouldn't be able to tell much difference between 2K and, say, 4K or 8K. And that is... I don't, that, that could just be my own physical limitations as Jonathan Strickland. You know, humans are different. Some humans have better vision than others. My vision is not the best, obviously. So it may very well be that for someone else, there is a definitive difference. They can, they can see that there is a difference between the resolutions. Uh, for me, not so much. Like if, I, if I'm not told which set is 8K versus you know, 4K or 2K, then I'm not likely to be able to pick them out other than if one is just ginormous. Still, 
Samsung showed off their 98-inch 8K television, and they said that 8K screens are coming out in the spring of 2019. So we're going to start seeing 8K sets, which does mean that the uh, lower ultra-high-definition resolution television sets will get cheaper. So I'm all for it. Because uh, I don't have one yet. Again, I don't know that it would even matter. Samsung also talked about Family Hub and Bixby. Family Hub is sort of their Internet of Things uh, platform, and Bixby is their personal assistant, essentially. And they have a fridge that will send you a notification on your phone if you leave the door open to the fridge. So, you know, that's something. And then they talked about their PCs. They talked about their in-car systems falling in line with some of those trends I mentioned earlier. The in-car system includes uh, cameras, like I talked about, but these cameras actually have facial recognition, so it's not just that they can tell if you're not looking at the windscreen when you're driving or the road when you're driving. They can actually tell who you are. There's facial recognition technology incorporated with the camera system, so the car technically, quote-unquote, knows who is driving and who's a passenger in the car. And this means that each person can have his or her own profile with the vehicle, with their own preferences. And that the car, when they detect who's driving, can automatically enable those preferences. So let's say that you uh, have specific settings, like you want the the car seat to be a specific distance away from the steering wheel. Uh, You like a particular range of radio stations. Uh, Maybe you like a particular temperature Maybe you really like the the car seat heater to be on on cold days, that kind of stuff. When you get in, this car recognizes it's you and sets all those things to your preferences automatically. But then maybe your uh, your spouse or your kid or your parent or your friend gets behind the wheel. They also have a profile with your car then the car will automatically adjust to their preferences if they have been established, which I think is kind of neat. It's also kind of creepy. And again, it raises questions about data privacy and security. You want to make sure that all of those preferences are kept pretty much, you know, between you and the car. You don't necessarily want companies to know all the things that all of your peculiarities, the things that make you you, uh, there, there's going to probably be some point where you're thinking, you yeah, companies just don't need to know that. They don't need to know that I sing along with Taylor Swift whenever she comes on the radio. And I, I'm not saying that I do, but I'm not saying that I don't. Anyway, Samsung also unveiled a line of robot products, including a robot that can take your vital signs. You can put your finger on its screen and it'll measure your blood flow and blood pressure. It'll tell you how healthy you are or not, I guess. And it can also do stuff like play soothing music if you're totally stressed out by having a robot in your home, maybe. IBM showed off its Q-System Quantum Computer, which is the 20-qubit system that the company developed and now offers up as a cloud-based platform. And I talked about this when I went to the IBM Think conference last year in 2018. Uh, they, They showed it off a little bit more this year at CES. The really important thing about this platform, I think, is that we should keep in mind this is not meant to be the groundbreaking machine that's going to help scientific researchers find new discoveries and and break through barriers that have previously been up in front of them. It's more like a stepping stone toward that goal. Because 20 qubits, that's sufficient for some small applications, but it's not really at a level that's going to be transformative, I don't think. However, what it does do is it gives developers the chance to actually explore how the quantum system works and figure out the best way to leverage that. So in other words, how to program software that can take advantage of this quantum computing system. Without knowing how to build out the software, then it just ends up being a really impressive machine that doesn't really do anything, right? The the real potential of computers isn't just in their horsepower, but what we do with it, the software that we create for those computers. So that's kind of what this platform is going to allow people to do, is to ask questions like, how can we design something that could be really useful with this new method of computing? And as we start to develop those practices, when we begin to make bigger, more powerful quantum computing systems, we'll be able to take better advantage of them. And then we hit those, hopefully, amazing breakthroughs that we've been thinking about all this time. So it, it's not like the the end of encryption is right around the corner, but 
we can see the end of it off in the distance. On the PC side, most of the changes and features were evolutionary, not revolutionary, not a big surprise. A lot of the laptops I've seen so far have sported really thin bezels, for example. That's become kind of the new trend in the last couple of years. And we're starting to see manufacturers talk about 5G integration uh, so that there'll be native support when that technology is ready. But generally speaking, I haven't seen a whole lot of truly like wild, wacky stuff. Uh, for several years, there have been tons of personal transportation devices on display. Things like, you know, stuff like the, that's in the, the range of Segway, right? The hoverboards, the Segway-like material, or, or uh, gadgets rather, things like that. Electric skateboards, pedal assist bikes. These have all been part of CES for ages. But one thing I found really inspiring was a demonstration of the One Wheel XR Plus um, personal transportation device. Uh, it's, it looks like a balance board with a wheel in the middle. So kind of, you know, you got that one wheel in the center and you've got the, the board you stand on on either side of the wheel. Derek Ross gave a demonstration and it was pretty remarkable because Mr. Ross lost a leg in Afghanistan uh, after a bomb exploded. So he has a prosthetic leg, but he also uses the one wheel device. He's able to get on this thing and wheel around like it's, a natural way of traveling around his environment. And the way he was really able to do this is through firmware on the one wheel that is uh, codenamed Gemini. It allows each user to customize their experience. So you can make sure that the device is responding to you exactly the way you want it to. So you don't have to necessarily just learn how it works. You can teach it to work with you. Uh, which, again, that's sort of like the, the big goal of machine learning in general is that we take away the necessity for us to learn how the machines work and we teach the machines how we work and then the machines help us work better. So Ross uses this to glide around his home even though he has a prosthetic leg, which I think is pretty inspirational. When we come back, I'm going to talk about some of the wacky, weird, fun stuff that I've seen or have heard of so far at CES. And... Uh, there's some, there's some weird ones on there, so stick with me. I'm going to take a quick break to thank our sponsor. So one of the weird things that we saw here at CES this year is, <laughs> is a, a camera called Baby Eyes or Babe Eyes. Um, it's a camera you mount on your baby because that's where we are now. It's, a, it's kind of a camera on a sticker, actually, and you put the sticker on your baby, and this camera can record for two hours on a single charge, and then you offload the video onto another device, like a computer. And it comes with some software, and the software has facial recognition abilities, so it can start pulling out all the video that happens to have people's faces in it. So, you know, you skip all the stuff where there's no one in the frame, and your baby's just not pointed at anything in particular. So I guess when you do point your baby at someone thinking of the baby is almost like a tripod, uh, then the camera software knows that there was a person there. And in the future, you're supposed to be able to search through the collective video footage for specific people. And according to the company, you could even search according to specific moods. This was one of those really quirky things to make it to CES that got some early coverage because it wasn't exactly like everything else that's already out there. Speaking of cameras, Valio, that's a company that often works with autonomous car developers, created a system called the Extra View Trailer. So imagine you're towing a trailer behind your vehicle. So you've got a trailer behind you. Now imagine that both your vehicle and the trailer itself have rear-mounted cameras on them that can capture video footage of everything behind them. Now imagine that the forward surface of that trailer, the surface that's actually facing the back windshield of your vehicle, is really a video screen, and it's got a live feed from those cameras. So when you look in your rearview mirror, instead of seeing a trailer, you see a screen that is displaying a video feed of whatever is behind it. It's like the video screen is almost like a cloaking device for the trailer. The trailer's gone invisible, and you can see through it. That's the effect. And it's supposed to help drivers change lanes and park more safely because they can see what is behind their trailer, and they can have a greater awareness of their surroundings. I thought that was pretty cool. Hyundai also showed off a concept vehicle called Elevate, or the Ultimate Mobility Vehicle. You need to look up pictures of this thing. 
Uh, I don't think this is ever going to see production. It is a concept, not a, not an actual vehicle that you can get in. But it is nifty because in addition to the wheels that you would expect to find on a car, you know, typical car features are wheels, this thing has legs. So the legs can extend down and you know, it can go from wheeled mode into legged mode and then it can climb over terrain that wheels would have trouble getting over. Now details about this concept are pretty scarce probably because it is just so darn conceptual. But um, one of the things that Hyundai was, isn't saying is whether this is a driver-controlled vehicle or an autonomous vehicle, but it is worth pointing out that robotic legs are really hard to get right. Boston Dynamics has spent years working on the kinks to just basic robotic leg motion. You know, they had countless experiments with one-legged robots hopping in a circle trying to get it just right. The wheel has been a go-to for a lot of vehicles and robots because it's orders of magnitude easier to operate than a leg. You know, legs have to contend with things like balance, uh, shifting of gravity, like its gravitational center, that kind of thing, pressure, and it has to deal with these things in ways that wheels just don't. So it's tough to do. I would imagine it would have to be autonomous, but it was a really nifty concept. Mercedes-Benz showed off another concept called the Urbanetic, it's sort of like a, a minivan pod type thing that you would get in. There's no, no, no driver controls or anything. Uh, it's the interior is a, a couple of seats or, or like almost like benches that all face inward and uh, has a nice skylight. You can see out into the Vegas skyline. Uh, and it looks like it's an autonomous taxi or autonomous vehicle, uh, delivery vehicle, but it's not truly autonomous, at least not the version shown off at CES. It was actually driven remotely by a human operator, but the concept is for an autonomous vehicle and what such a vehicle would be like in the future. So you would sit in this nice, large, kind of funky design uh, vehicle. I didn't get a chance to ride in it because the line was super long. And also, I don't even know if my badge would let me. Like, I don't know if I have the level of... Uh, of notoriety and importance to be able to get in such a vehicle, but look neat. Let's see. Uh, there's the OBSBOT. That's a 4K camera that has AI functionality built into it, so it can follow the subject as the subject moves around the environment. So the camera's stationary. It has a base uh, that the camera sits on. The camera itself is connected to an arm that's on a gimbal, so it has uh, three axes of rotation. And so the camera can pan up and down, left and right. You know, it can do some tilt and um, or rotate and you set up the camera you use gesture controls to indicate to the camera follow me i am the person that needs to be the focus of this video and the camera will automatically track you so as you move around the environment the camera will turn and continue to keep its focus on you it also has a, a 12 megapixel resolution and a 3.5 times optical zoom so not a digital zoom it actually has an optical zoom it's using lenses and uh, distance to create the zooming feature. And there are other gesture controls. If you hold up your palm, that's what tells it to follow you, but you could also hold up a peace sign that would tell it to zoom in. Uh, the camera's launching on Kickstarter and may even, that Kickstarter may even be up and running by the time you hear this podcast. And from what I understand, the camera has a price tag of $450. So it's not cheap, but it does look pretty nifty. Uh, there's a company called Bell, formerly Bell Helicopter, that showed off a concept called the Bell Nexus here at CES. It's a, a flying taxi type thing. It looks kind of like a really large version of a consumer drone, you know, like a quadcopter, except this one has six ducted fans, not four. And they can rotate to provide lift and thrust, so it's like a VTOL vehicle. Uh, the company has partnered with Uber, and they plan to have an air taxi service launch figuratively and literally, sometime in the 2020s. So according to Bell, this concept could hold up to five people, and it has a weight capacity of 600 pounds, so it's not going to be carting around the starting lineup of a hockey team or anything. That'd be too heavy. But if all goes as planned, within a decade, we're going to have flying taxis taking us places, assuming that they are proven to be safe and we figure out how the heck to create regulations for such a thing. Uh, this is going to be another one of those uh, the, the cases where technology and the law are not in alignment. <laughs> I have a feeling that the law is going to have to catch up quickly to this kind of tech. Uh, finally, for this episode, I mean, there's tons more I could talk about, but I've been going super long already. And this is like an old school tech stuff episode. 
Harley-Davidson showed off its first all-electric motorcycle here at CES. It's going to be available for purchase later in 2019 for the princely sum of $29,799, one of the most expensive electric motorbikes I've heard of. In fact, it might be the most expensive one I've seen. It can go from 0 to 60 miles per hour in just 3.5 seconds, and according to the company, it will actually produce a, quote, new signature Harley-Davidson sound, end quote as you accelerate, because, you know, it's electric, so otherwise it would be completely silent uh, when it was gearing up. But now, and you don't have to worry about switching gears either, because it's an electric motor, but now it's going to have a, an electronically generated sound so that you still get that feel of the Harley rumble, I imagine. I really hope to get a chance to look at that uh, in person. I'm sure that's at the North Hall. It's where most of the cars and vehicle stuff is. Uh, here at the uh, at CES. It's over at the Las Vegas Convention Center. So hopefully tomorrow I'll get a chance to see that. All right. Well, that is our overview of CES 2019. I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to send this off to my wonder producer, Tari, and hopefully she'll be able to, uh, to get this up and running soon, whereas I will be wandering the halls of CES trying to see if there's anything else interesting to talk about in future episodes. So you guys, I hope you've had a great new year so far. I look forward to hearing from you guys. If you have any suggestions for future topics of tech stuff, whether it's a company, technology, maybe there's someone in tech I should focus on, let me know. Send me an email. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter, techstuffhsw at both of those. Go to our website. That's techstuffpodcast.com. And you can check out the archives and find out more about the show. Also, don't forget to head over to our merchandise store. That's over at tpublic.com slash techstuff. There you can buy items uh, that are connected to the show. And every purchase you make goes to help our show. We greatly appreciate it. And I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 